A very good afternoon to all of you. Welcome to the LSE for this online event. My name is Andrea Menikin. I'm Associate Professor of Accounting and Co-Director of CAR, the Center for Analysis of Risk and Regulation at the London School of Economics and Political Science. This afternoon, we will talk about transboundary crisis management in Europe in the wake of COVID-19. This is a live event that has been jointly organized by the Department's of Government and Accounting and CAR at the LSE. The event is part of LSE's public event series, COVID-19, The Policy Response. COVID-19 represents a critical transboundary crisis. COVID-19 knows no territorial boundaries and it fundamentally challenges the boundaries of state action. Many national responses to the pandemic, as we've seen, have caused further transboundary um, crisis in themselves. What are the emerging lessons that can actually be drawn from this pandemic for political crisis leadership? What can we say about the resilience of liberal democratic political systems in Europe? What lessons can be drawn for multi-level crisis management within and across nation states? This event brings together leading experts to consider these questions, and I'm very pleased um, to be here to welcome Arjen Boyne, Lydia Caban, Nick Sitter, at Martin Lodge as our speakers today. I will briefly introduce them in a moment, but let me first introduce you to the format of, of this event. So we will start off with statements, opening statements from each of the speakers. Then we will have an interpanel discussion. And after that, I will open the floor to questions um, from the audience. So please engage um, in our debate and submit your questions via the Q&A button, which you can find on the bottom of your, of your screen. Um, please um, type short questions into the Q&A uh, box and if possible include your name and affiliation and any links um, if you have them with, with the LSE. Questions will be submitted directly to me and I will try to pose as many as possible um, to our speakers. For those of you who are Twitter users, um, the hashtag for today's event is LSE COVID-19. The online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to technical, no technical difficulties. So let me now briefly introduce um, the speakers. Arjen Boyne, who will speak first, is Professor of Public Institutions and Governance at Leiden University, and he's an expert in crisis management and leadership. Lady Cabana, who will talk next, is Assistant Professor in Governance of Crisis at the Institute for Security and Global Affairs, also at Leiden University, um, and she has an interdisciplinary background in sociology and political science. Nick Sitter, who will speak then, he's Professor of Public Policy at the Central European University, and he's also Professor of Political Economy at the BI Norwegian Business School. He's a leading authority on populism and democratic backsliding in Europe. And then Martin Larcher will speak last, is Professor of Political Science and Public Policy um, at the LSE in the Department of Government, and he's also the co-director of CAR. All our speakers today um, have also been involved in a joint um, international research project. That research project was funded as part of the EU Horizon 2020 research um, scheme, um, and that project looked into transboundary crisis management and Europe's transboundary crisis management capacity. And we look forward to hearing from all of our speakers, you know, insights from this project and how these can be applied to the pandemic. We are facing um, today. If you want um, to learn more about the project, um, you can visit its website on transcrisis.eu. But now I'm delighted to hand over to Aryan 
um, our first speaker. Thank you for taking part in this event, Aryan. Over to you now. Well, thank you, uh, Andrea. Um, thank you for having me. And um, let me just start by uh, pointing out the, the obvious. Is, you know, we're looking at a, uh, a super transboundary crisis, as, as you just told us. And when we were thinking about this in our project, and we were very interested to see, you know, what, what what would it take for countries to sort of collaborate across boundaries if they were facing crises that develop across boundaries? So what kind of capacity would they develop or, or would they choose to go it alone? And I think the, the first observation is, uh, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have expected this, but what we're seeing is that, that most countries are going it alone and they're developing uh, their, their own approaches. And uh, so it's interesting to see um, what has happened if, if we look at it from that perspective, from a crisis management perspective. So what has brought this uh, uh, absence of international collaboration and coordination? Uh, what has brought us in? And maybe that will help us to understand you know, what we need in the future. So if I just uh, briefly go by the, the main tasks of uh, crisis management, um, and we see, I, I think we see a few patterns. So the first one is detection. And we expect uh, crisis managers to uh, do everything they can to detect crisis in their earliest phases. And um, um, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to go out of limb and say that most countries, uh, it's almost inconceivable, but we're late in recognizing the uh, the emergence of this crisis somehow thinking that you know this is not going to happen to us this is happening to other countries this is it's not going to happen in our country we're prepared you know we have a fantastic machinery we're going to deal with this and uh, um, I just you know um, we're beyond that now but but it just evokes the question how was that possible um, the second point that I, I would like to make is that in all all of these countries you see authorities wrestling with the uncertainty that comes with this crisis. And it's an ever evolving uncertainty. First it was about, you know, how, how many people um, have the virus, you know, now we're, we're now we're you know, at the point where we're asking, what are the consequences, long-term consequences? How, how can we get out of this? How can we get phase out of this? So uh, we, we've seen this super interesting, uh, relation or non-relation, because there's a lot of variety there, between authorities and experts. So between the domain of experts usually ignored under normal circumstances. Uh, in some countries, uh, like Holland, you know, the, the prime minister goes out and says, you know, we do everything that the experts tell us. In uh, other countries, they, um, you know, leaders make a point of overriding experts. And uh, um, the, the, the great uh, absent actor here is the, the international expertise centers like the ECDC or the CDC or the, the WHO um, organization that um, somehow are absent in um, addressing the uncertainty in these countries. So we see the rise of the national uh, experts. Um, decision making, you know, how do authorities make the key decisions in these crises? Martin and I have uh, uh, made a difference between a pragmatic approach, kind of wait and see and see what happens and, and adjust, versus a, a principle approach where you take you know, one overriding principle and, and use that as, as the source of the design for your strategy. 
we've seen that in the beginning, you know, lockdown versus, uh, you know, let's see what happens. And now we're seeing it in the exit strategy. But most interesting, we see a, a variety of approaches. So every country seems to be somewhere on a scale, um, but there's, again, doesn't seem to be a lot of coordination. And then finally, in communicating about all these approaches, uh, what I've noticed is that countries communicate to their national audiences um, with uh, almost a sort of blatant disregard for the idea that other countries are also watching what leaders say in their countries. So they're, they're um, enlarging the uh, uncertainty, uh, confusion, and lack of coordination by um, pretending that there are no borders or, or, or the borders are so complete that they don't have to worry about what happens in other countries. So all in all, I'd say transboundary crisis, completely uh, complete lack of uh, transboundary coordination, and um, you know, up for debate is uh, um, is this good or bad? Thank you, Aryan. Thank you very much. Let's now move to to Liddy and and her opening remarks. Um, hello, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you, uh, Andrea. Um, I will prolonge the discussion opened by Arian asking what uh, cooperation is possible between countries. Um, and I would like to talk a bit more in particular about what the European Union has done to respond to COVID-19 uh, as a pandemic. So focusing really on the health aspects of the pandemics, what has been done and what it could do better. Uh, first, briefly, some, uh, just some rapid element of context. As Arjen said, uh, pandemics are transboundary crises. They affect really countries uh, across border, and they require cooperation uh, to tackle them. Uh, this is especially true in the European Union, uh, where uh, we share our borders, where human goods, but also viruses, can uh, freely travel. Uh, so which means that it is crucial for European uh, member states to cooperate. Otherwise, we may end up in situation as the ones we have seen in early March, where uh, member states uh, unilaterally close their borders, do not cooperate, adopt uh, travel bans that may not be efficient if your neighbor is still opening its borders. So we see that this cooperation is even more important within the European Union. Um, as I say, at the beginning, it didn't seem to work fine. And then a series of measures have been adopted, and I will come back on this. I will first would like to remind, um, to recall a little something before I, say, before I say more about crisis management. So what is the role of the European Union in risk in health? I think this is a key issue to understand what could the European Union realistically do or not. So actually the European Union competence in health from a legal point of view is only to complement member states so which means the member states are the first responders. They are in charge of, um, uh, of their public health policies and their hospitals. However, um, the European Union uh, can share this competence with member states uh, in the case of what we call common health concerns, such as pandemics, because pandemics affect all member states. Um, so this means that um, the European Union is not in a very well position to actually respond to a pandemic. It can, the member states will uh, first and foremost respond, while the European Union can only push a little bit for more cooperation, can incentivize this, but does not have all the cards in its hands. 
Um, and I think that partly explains uh, what happened and why the European Union um, has not been seen acting as it should have. So now I would like to discuss four types of uh, crisis management actions that have been uh, adopted or may could have been adopted by the European Union. Um, as Ariane and Andrea mentioned, I think these types of crisis management build uh, upon the research we carried uh, during in the Trans Crisis Project, uh, in which we also looked at other types of crisis management. Uh, so I think the first type of possible action is intergovernmental actions. Uh, members, uh, heads of states, ministers meet around the table or through Skype um, and they discuss issues and adopt a series of actions. So we've seen a lot of that actually since the beginning of the crisis, health ministers, but also prime ministers, uh, presidents um, and ministers in all sorts of domain meet on a weekly basis. Um, this has been both essential to sort out some problems, for example, related to border closures, um, but it has not been enough. Uh, why it has not been enough? First, for example, it's not clear what is the outcome of these meetings in the case of health. There is so far no joint actions, um, and um, I think member states could do more from an intergovernmental point of view. Uh, they could, for example, adopt a recommendation uh, from the Council to ensure more consistency and coordination uh, in their response to pandemics, for example, adopting a more common approach in terms of testing or quarantining. And for the moment, we see that they are very different approaches between countries, and this is a problem that could be solved. The second, actually, most common type of action uh, in uh, uh, in crisis management is what we call multi-level coordination. So it's about multi, uh, European Union institutions helping member states uh, coordinating each other and promoting joint actions. Um, and this is where the European Union has done the most. Um, we, there has been uh, four types of actions. I will briefly mention some actors. The first one is the European Centre for Disease Control that Arjen already mentioned. Um, unfortunately, we haven't heard very much from this one. Um, the ECDC, as a lot of experts, failed to see this crisis. Um, it's failed to trigger warning to European member states. Um, partly, I mean, this is due to uh, its lack of competence. It can pull expertise between member states, but it cannot really raise an alarm. Um, so I think we should really review the role of the ECDC to really empower it, to give it, to give it uh, expertise more uh, credibility and power in the face of member states. The second most common action is the role of the Health Security Committee, uh, which reunites na na national experts at the Commission. Again, I think this committee has been meeting on a weekly basis, uh, but we're still waiting to see the outcome of these meetings. Um, again, it could also have more power to take, uh, to adopt common decisions in terms of, uh, to ensure more consistency in terms of uh, medical approach, testing, quarantining, confining people. And the Commission could support that by implementing acts. So uh, if member states adopt a decision, the European Commission can transfer it into, put it into law. Uh, and the, again, the role of this committee should be reviewed to uh, strengthen its coordinating power. Third uh, type of action, we've heard a bit of that, joint procurement, so member states can come all together uh, and bid together for uh, things like, for goods like protective equipment, medicines, 
This is essential. But as in the other cases, uh, it came too late. Joint procurements were only available from, the, from mid-March to mid-April. Uh, this should have been the case early on from the very beginning of the pandemic to prevent member states from competing for essential goods like masks and medicines, uh, as we unfortunately saw. Um, again, this should be reviewed to be much more automatic. Finally, the fourth type of uh, multi-level action is the, what we call the civil protection mechanism, which is a, a mechanism for disaster assistance, uh, which again revealed the lack of cooperation. Italy asked for the activation of the, this mechanism by early March, and no member state responded. Um, they only responded afterwards, um, and its role is now a bit limited, uh, which um, triggered some call for review by the president of the European Council, because this mechanism could do much more. And uh, it raises in particular the question of how can uh, cooperation be ensured when all member states are uh, affected by the same disaster or the same pandemic. I think this, uh, I've described the type of actions at European level. Now I would like to discuss two types of possible improvement uh, for responding to pandemic and improving cooperation. The first type of uh, possible cooperation would be to, um, is related to pandemic preparedness. Uh, and we've seen a lot of uh, failures around that. Currently, pandemic preparedness is a national competence, so which means that member states prepare their plans on their own. And there is actually one uh, decision from 2030 which requires member states to consult each other after they have, drawn their, they have drawn up their plan. So this is clearly insufficient because member states have no incentive to share information and to uh, harmonize their plans. So one possibility here could be to um, adopt a, re a regulation to provide templates and common procedures to ensure that we are to ensure more consistency um, amongst member states, which would eventually help coordination when the crisis comes. The fourth, uh, the fourth option is something that has been very heavily debated uh, in policy circle, is the question of supranationalization. Should we give more power to the European Union to respond to pandemic? Is it a good idea? Is it desirable or feasible? Um, some have called for the creation of a European Union agency or of a union of health or to give more powers to the Commission. I think these options raise uh, a lot of concerns for various reasons. The first one is that, first of all, in the current legal setup, they are not possible because the European Union does not have a competence uh, in F, only a shared one for some aspects. So, um, such a, such a nationalization will require a treaty change, which we know in the current setting is not easily feasible. Um, second, they also raise democratic concerns. Um, it is very difficult to imagine the Commission adopting measure, uh, freedom infringing measures such as lockdown. Uh, it really does not have the power or the legitimacy to do so. A uh, citizen can only accept that those measures if they come from nationally elected governments. Um, and certainly it's not clear that such supranationalization would be more, uh, would be effective. We need coordination, 
but citizens are not likely to uh, trust more uh, a distant bureaucracy in Brussels when it comes to uh, enforcing the lockdown. And tackling pandemics also requires a lot of local actions. Okay, for example, uh, contact tracing um, or change of um, behaviors. Um, so we see a lot of uh, problems if we want to actually enforce more cooperation uh, at supranational level. That said, um, pandemics are extraordinary uh, situation and we really need to be able to do more in terms of cooperation. So we could, in, for example, think of a system in which we give more power to the European CDC or to the Commission um, to uh, to, do, to adopt decision and then member state could still be in charge of implementation. This model exists, for example, also in banking, and that could be one way of uh, improving cooperation. Um, I will finish here and leave it over to Nick Sitter, who also have other things to say about uh, the kind of problems the European Union faces. Thank you very much, Liddy. Thank you. Yeah, now over to, to Nick. Um, Nick, please. Thank you. Uh, my, my task here is slightly different to, to look at how COVID-19 and the crisis has affected the EU's ability to deal with other crises. And, and as an example of this, a prominent example of this, uh, I want to look a little bit more closely at one of the crises we looked at in the trans-crisis project, which is the rule of law crisis or the democracy crisis in the European Union. And, and my contention, I think, is that the European Union's ability to deal with this has, has been reduced. Uh, by the crisis. The crisis has made the rule of law and democracy crisis in the EU more acute, and it's made it more difficult for European Union institutions to actually resolve or deal with this crisis. So uh, in the next few minutes, I want to make six points about this. The first is simply that there clearly is a rule of law crisis or a democracy backslide, democratic backsliding crisis in the European Union. And the two most serious cases are Hungary and Poland. In the Hungarian case, the last 10 years, and in the Polish case, the last five years. In the Hungarian case, a matter of political centralization, new constitutions, undermining the independence of civil society, the judiciary, uh, even the market. In the Polish case, primarily uh, an issue of the judiciary. And both of these countries have been, um, are subject to the use so-called Article 7 procedure, more about this in a minute and are being downgraded or have been downgraded by uh, international democracy indexes. Uh, point two, so what? Why is this a crisis for the EU? Can't the EU simply leave sovereign states to get on with what they want? If they want to dismantle democracy or have an alternative liberal model, let them do so. My contention here is that this is problematic for the EU in two respects. First, um, first that the EU really faces a dilemma here in terms of either it does nothing and runs the risk of undermining one of the fundamental building blocks of, of the union itself and of the single market, namely the rule of law, the workings of the rule of law, the fact that member states court recognize each other. Um, the other part of the dilemma is what if it does something, it could push Poland and Hungary out of the EU or into a second tier of the EU. Um, Furthermore, I think the last few years has shown that this actually has a geopolitical dimension as well. Hungary being pushed into the arms or walking into the arms of Putin, not so much an option for Poland, both of them establishing most close, much closer ties to China 
than the EU as a whole uh, is willing to do. So the EU faces a challenge here. Point three, why hasn't the EU done anything about this? In the Trans-Crisis Project, we look both at capacity to deal with the crisis and the political will to deal with the crisis. So I'll look first at the capacity issue. The capacity issue, I think, is linked very much to Article 7 itself, the mechanism whereby the EU can suspend certain aspects of member states' rights. Uh, this requires unanimity amongst the non-offending member states. That's a very, very high threshold. And I think it's fair to say that this was this is often described as the nuclear uh, option, inasmuch as it was designed as a deterrent effect rather than actually to have an effect. The second main tool the EU has is, is simply the ordinary infringement procedures, and, and these have been used uh, sparingly, if not, I think, somewhat timidly. Uh, in the last few years, since 2014, uh, the EU has also established what they call the rule of law framework. But in the end, this is more of an informal framework that only works in the shadow of the threat of Article 7. So the EU does have some tools, but it's been careful in using them and it's difficult to use them. That takes us to point four, political will. Why has the EU not used these tools? Uh, I think the first is the first the main reason is really a reluctance to, to go after a member state um, and criticize it for breaching the rule of law. In the Hungarian case, it was very much a, a matter of the center-right party in the European People's Party effectively shielding one of their members. That's changed a little bit in the last year with, with Fidesz, the Hungarian governing party, being suspended from the European People's Party. And it's, it's less so the, uh, the case in the Polish case. But as long as there is unanimity required to do anything with Article 7, of course, these two countries will have each other's backs. And there are other countries in the EU, about half a dozen, that are reluctant to go down that road for other reasons. Uh, furthermore, I think it's fair to say that neither the Commission nor the Parliament can walk away from the last few years unscathed in terms of assessment of what they've done. The Commission has opted to be very, very timid. For example, when it came to changing the guard of the Hungarian judiciary, uh, the government did so by lowering the mandatory retirement age. The European Commission treated this simply as a matter of age discrimination, not as a matter of um, rule of law. Hence. The Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, was allowed to pack the courts with his appointees, only subject to paying compensation for age discrimination, thus getting a seal of approval from the European Commission. In the Parliament, I think the criticism is that both sides have been much more enthusiastic about prosecuting um, members of the opposite team, if you like, than, than members of their own team. So this takes us to point five, which is, so what has the COVID crisis? actually made this more difficult. And here I think there are three things worth giving a little bit of thought to. The first is, is all the, um, the noise and controversies at the moment about the enabling law in Hungary, the emergency law that gives the Prime Minister more or less effectively unlimited power uh, on an indefinite basis. And the second is the, the controversies about uh, Polish elections. But uh, but in my view, this is largely the two countries continuing on a trajectory that they've been on for respectively 10 and 5 years. So there's not that much new there. I think the really critical issue lies in how other developments uh, with respect to COVID-19 have affected the European Union's ability to deal with this uh, crisis in what was 
I think a few months ago, the most promising mechanism, namely linking rule of law compliance to EU funding. And the key point here is Italy. Italy has basically said, we want unconditional EU funding in the form of, uh, of Corona bonds. Now, they won't get that, but they will get less conditional funding. This makes it very, very difficult for Italy, for countries in a similar position, to agree to attach conditions, rule of law conditions, to other forms of EU funding, as was until now being discussed in the context of the new seven-year EU budget, the multi-annual financial framework. And finally, on this point, uh, I think it's worth noting that the German Constitutional Court's recent ruling uh, will will probably be used by, by both the Polish and Hungarian governments to justify their assertion that national law uh, or national legal systems in some cases are above or more important than the, um, than the EU cases. So to wrap it all up on point six, for those of you who are still counting, uh, what can the EU do about this? I think I see three trajectories ahead. And using the, the framework that, that Martin and, and Aryan uh, have, have written about in the blog recently, and Aryan mentioned about the difference between pragmatic and principled approaches. I think the what is often thought of, I think, at the EU level as a pragmatic approach is not to do very much, which they've been doing up until now. And that takes us back to the initial dilemma of uh, if you don't do anything, you undermine the United States. I think that's the most likely way forward. Uh, a second possibility is what you might label a confrontational approach uh, to take a principled stand and say, we must defend the rule of law in the EU, it's a matter of treaties, and to confront Poland and Hungary, which will either lead to an Article 7 ruling against them and possibly push them out of the EU, or lead to the failure of an Article 7 ruling, in which case we're back with the ordinary dilemma again. And finally, uh, there is, I think, a third possibility, which is how I would, I think I'd describe it as a sort of pragmatism plus, a slightly more forceful pragmatic approach, would be to, to use uh, the EU's current instruments to put more pressure on Hungary and Poland and to try and contain democratic backsliding in these two cases and make sure it doesn't spread further. The key to that, however, is linking spending to the rule of law. Uh, that's it for me. Thank you very much, Nick. Thanks for these insights into how the COVID-19 crisis um, might uh, or will actually affect um, furthering of democratic backsliding. Um, now over to our final speaker, Martin Lodge, who will give us uh, insight into multi-level coordination issues. Martin, please. Well, yes, I, um, a few comments about um, sort of the capacity constraints um, that we may uh, be looking at. And I think it's worth noting um, that we are discussing this in a, in a context of a much longer sort of set of trends um, which affects the capacity of these of transboundary systems of governing, even when they might already exist, to actually function. And one is uh, what one might argue uh, renationalized uh, politics, um, um, the, the need or the demand by national politicians to be sort of campaigning on national topics, to be seen, to be saying that the EU is something not helpful rather than a solution. Uh, and equally, and possibly particularly important when one thinks about procurement, one also talks about high degree of fragmentation of administrative machineries um, across uh, nation states. Um, uh, and thirdly, one might also argue um, possibly limited readiness, um, despite existing transboundary scripts, 
to actually operate these scripts when asked uh, to do so by member states. So these are sort of three background conditions. But I think where, where this particular um, pandemic is offering us some interesting or important insights is sort of for the future. It's sort of not much where one might argue uh, sort of the acute responses, uh, lockdowns and so on. But I think sort of the, the key question now for transboundary crisis management is sort of how to deal with sort of the ongoing uh, crisis if... Um, if it still can be defined as a crisis in the framework of iron, it is still urgent, it is still threatening, and it's still defined by high degrees of uncertainty. So, and I think there are sort of three elements here which makes this quite um, quite uh, peculiar, you might say, or a unique set of uh, crisis management const- uh, uh, stress points. Um, so one is uh, what one, for lack of better word, might call it the ongoing creeping nature of this acute crisis. So we have had now a lockdown in the name of public health, but other systems have evolved and we don't really know when the, let's call it the great unfreezing of of social and economic system emerges, what is actually still alive, um, uh, you know, how will we return in a sort of semi-defrosted states um, as a higher education institution, for example. So many more crises will emerge in other systems, um, which are not just about uh, public health, and they will sort of turn up over the forthcoming uh, months. And here again, the question for both national, regional, but also uh, EU institutions is, um, is there really a clear way to think about who should be in charge of dealing with these various creeping uh, creeping crises that will emerge? Um, because ultimately, there, there will be calls just as now for consistent administration, some degree of joint principles and such like. Uh, the second key challenge, I would say, is uh, what again, you know, for lack of a better word, is I would call sort of the forthcoming twilight zone between ongoing crises, which is basically return to specific lockdowns or emergency provisions, and sort of the emerging world where you might call it risk management, where basically we sort of operate in social distance way and, and whatever happens, but there will be ultimately the need for some degree of monitoring and so on. Uh, but this twilight zone is highly demanding on, on everyone, not just on us as individuals, but also on any form of administrative system, because it exactly happens in the between the sort of day-to-day life, you might say, of normal operations and the world of crisis rooms and emergency provisions. Um, trying to organize that, um, I think, is so far um, unproven territory uh, for many institutions. It usually w- works very poorly uh, when it comes to the uh, kind of the development of an acute crisis, but I think it's even less proven uh, when it comes to the management of an ongoing, possibly very long-term kind of crisis. Uh, So that's sort of um, the kind of question. So these two points, the creeping nature, the twilight zones, are basically what to do with sort of these, let's call it emerging snowflakes in in the economy and in society. And then there's a third point too, where again, where I think there's a clear overlap between sort of the topics that Nick um, has been talking about and sort of the concern with what is the European Union actually doing here, not just sort of in terms of actual crisis management, but sort of as a system of values. And that goes um, about or is is about the the emergency state uh, that we are emerging as seen in various uh, member states um, at, at various points. I mean, one might not call this an emergency state, but these special provisions that have been taking, taken to lock things down, to... Um, to reduce the right to assemble and so on. And here again, sort of, I think key questions will be raised about what kind of principles should should underpin a future emergency state or 
even if a highly localized emergency state for that matter. So that raises then for me the final point, uh, and that is what actually transboundary, what actual transboundary capacities could we sort of talk about? I mean, we can talk as sort of um, Lydia and I in particular uh, have already mentioned kind of capacities of organization. So here we can talk about sort of a procurement, a joint procurement of materials that can be sent uh, to various hotspots, uh, which basically support member states in, in hours of need. Um, but as we sort of also have seen, this might be partially you know, kind of successful, but uh, in other cases, questions of procuring materials and so on has not been that successful. And more importantly, when it comes to sort of the national level, it does not basically support um, health systems that have been uh, sort of basically um, financially constrained for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's very difficult to imagine that the European Union can organize a few thousand nurses if national member states have been unable to do so beforehand. Um, secondly, one can sort of think about the European Union in the sense of an information provider. So here, basically, the argument would be it benchmarks, it supports sort of information provision. But here again, we are sort of fundamentally moving uh, in a problem that um, ultimately the numbers are not European ones, but ultimately local and national ones. Uh, so here again, I think the key problem or vulnerability of a transboundary capacity in terms of informing decisions is the ultimate dependency uh, on basically local actors to collect and uh, report, which leaves then, I think, in my view, the final sort of capacity, apart from finance, which is, I think, another debate, but um, the final capacity I want to sort of talk about here is um, authority. So here, Ultimately, one might argue the European Union capacities are not necessarily about sort of the acute management. Uh, it will always be uh, sort of um, a sideshow vis-a-vis the member states that will you know, kind of move first. And that might sort of be an answer to Ian's sort of uh, initial kind of comments. Uh, but one might argue maybe the place for European Union capacities is ultimately in regulating sort of the great, um, you know, kind of... Um, release basically um, um, of, um, of the lockdown. So here, however, again, sort of questions arise because ultimately what we're talking about here is highly diverse uh, kind of settings between boundaries. Uh, I can already see it uh, even in a sort of now non-EU member state about nobody understands how actually the deal between the United Kingdom and France is supposed to work in terms of uh, non-quarantining um, uh, tourists. Um, but why not? might also sort of look at sort of joint protocols for phone apps and such like. But here again, sort of the key question uh, or the key concern is that um, as much authority as the EU might have in basically developing protocols and um, schemes and memorandum of understandings and so on, there's always a risk that these turn into fantasy documents when ultimately member states are faced with a public health crisis. Thank you. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, thanks very much to, to all um, of the speakers for the opening statements. Before we open it up for, for the Q&A from, uh, from the audience, um, I would like to, to also follow up with a couple of questions for you, because we, we learn a lot um, from you about the different, the multifaceted nature of this crisis, that there is an immediate sort of health crisis that needs to be managed, and that is of a transboundary nature. We also learn about the potential effects you know, on, on the political system, democratic backsliding, of course, economic crisis management. Um, and first of all, I was wondering whether um, you could 
take a closer look at the different phases of crisis management. I think you all hinted at different sort of types of capacities that are needed, for example, when it comes to the acute management of a crisis. Um, for example, you know, the, the COVID health crisis, delivering capacity on the ground, making sure you know, that enough hospital beds are there. Uh, on the on the one hand, on on the on the other hand, there are questions um, to do with managing the later phases of the crisis, managing the the exit from the crisis, um, and managing then the consequences or, or possibly sort of further crisis, you know, that that are following out of this um, health crisis, such as economic crisis and so on. So maybe Aryan first, you know, can you say a bit more about the different phases of crisis management and what are the key capacities that are needed in these different phases if we look at entering and exiting the COVID nineteen crisis? Well, I'd say, you know, for, for clarity, uh, I would I would say there's three phases. So you, first you have that creeping phase where you can almost see that crisis coming. And then it's really the art of calling the crisis. You know, when are we saying this is a crisis? And that's a political decision. It should be. And, uh, and, and that capacity that, is, that are needed is understanding the mechanisms of that crisis. And... Um, and, and I was kind of astounded to see that, and I'll just speak for Holland, that um, that, that appeared to be very difficult. Uh, the acute phase is really the easy phase in a way. I mean, that's, you know, everybody looks at you, it's, there's a whole machinery and the dilemmas are clear. And then the hard part is, you know, are we going to go left or right? Are we going to do this or that? And, and that takes uh, sort of you know, the political leadership that political leaders usually um, are ready to give. Now, and now we're going back to that, and, and I, I think you know, Martin said we're in that uh, twilight zone towards a, uh, a phase where you know it's not really a crisis anymore. It's, it's a it's a it's a complex policy issue. You know how how we're going to redesign the society. So we're we're transferring back to a whole uh, to the you know whatever you, we have a whole range of names for that, um, and, and you know we got to do something really difficult, um, but but we the leaders sit there with a whole bunch of capacities that they've grown to like. It's kind of cool to sit there and say, Hey, you know, I can do whatever I want to do because we have, um, we have that emergency state going. And um, of course that's not going to work if you want to have an intelligent design of a new society. So, so there's a major clash set up almost that, that we can witness out in this twilight zone, but I'm sure others will, will be happy to comment on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Lydie, do you want to comment on also on the role of the different EU institutions during the different phases? Yes, um, I think following Aryan's three phases, I think let's start with the early warning and detection. Uh, this is really an area where the European Union should have an added value um, and should be able to bring um, national member states' expertise together uh, so that we can have a good assessment of the threat. Uh, as I said, clearly this is an area where there has been um, a massive failure because the European CDC, uh, based in Stockholm, uh, did not see this coming. Uh, I think we the, the, the change of perception, as in other countries, happened in March, which was way too late. Um, so I think there will be a need for um, inquiries. So why didn't we see this threat coming? Um, and second, how can we um, really pull better expertise? Because I think that's really where we should have a common assessment and that's uh, pro and we should probably think into how we can better equip the ECDC and um, give, uh, give the ECDC a bit more power to uh, raise the alarm. 
the second, in terms of uh, acute crisis management, so really the firefighting, well, actually, this is a phase that mostly raised in the ends of member states because the member states are the ones that have um, the manpower. Um, European Union institutions have, uh, don't have control over hospitals, uh, over civil protections. Um, so in terms of really delivering the assistant, the first assistant uh, member states are really are, have the most capacities. Um, here, what the European can do is help a little bit. Uh, it did so, for example, by removing the budgeting rules so that member states could uh, really spend massively uh, some budge uh, their budget on assistance. Where the European Union will have, I think, a stronger role is uh, in that third recovery or whether, I think, we're still in a complex situation, what uh, Arjen called the, the complex policy uh, problem. Um, and here, uh, the European Union, uh, I would say, capacity lies mostly in its uh, policy uh, and legal system. So what, uh, how can we ensure that the rules uh, and the policies across the European Union are well articulated to, uh, to one another so that we can respond well to uh, the pandemics? Um, to give you an example, for example, today, uh, European Union um, tourism ministers uh, meet uh, to discuss how we could uh, organize the holiday season for Europeans. Uh, this is typically a problem the European Union can solve. So this is mostly, a, I would say, a policy capacity. Um, and I will stop here. Thank you, Lydie. Um, Nick, what you discussed, you know, the, the risks of the, of the crisis and the effects of the COVID-19 crisis on democratic backsliding, that's probably of a much more creeping nature. It's not as acute um, as some of the other challenges. So what would you think are the particular sort of capacities, coordination capacities um, needed for the management, actually, and containment of democratic backsliding? I think um, I'd, I'd want to make two comments here, one on the EU level and one on the member state level. Uh, I think I think the comment on the EU level is that in terms of the kind of steps that we've been looking at, so detecting a crisis and making sense of a crisis, then moving on to actually making decisions and implementing them and coordinating them, and finally wrapping it up and exiting it. I think with respect to democratic backsliding, rule of law crisis, the, the fundamental problem with the EU is is that it's not really got beyond the first stage. Stuck in the first stage with our big political disagreement about what's going on and how to make sense of it. And I think what we're seeing here is that in terms of the very high thresholds for making decisions at the second level, supermajorities, unanimity in the case of actually taking action against the United States, this, this is feeding back into the sense-making part of it uh, with a kind of let's not do anything about this because we won't get anywhere, get anywhere anyway until we have false consensus. So, so I think here we're not even at the stage where we're thinking about how to exit this uh, and I think a lot of that's because Article 7 was always thought of as having deterrent value, not the actual value. The second point I think uh, I'd make in reply to your question, we'll go at the member state level, and just to, to, to point out that it's certainly interesting and worthwhile to, to compare the kind of emergency decrees we're seeing in different countries. In Norway, for example, a uh, very limited degree decree, giving the government power or to change a very limited number of laws, giving one third of parliament the possibility to stop this, uh, so very limited in scope, nature, and timing, as opposed to Hungary, where the power is effectively uh, effectively unlimited in the sense that 
the decree can be used to do all sorts of things, even though it's meant to deal with the crisis. It effectively lasts until Parliament or the courts, which basically means the Prime Minister says it no longer it no longer lasts. So that takes us to the to the question at member state level is really whether this becomes a slow burning or an acute crisis is not too much about the decrees that the member states enact, which we can all say, okay, fair enough, you have to enact a decree, it's a crisis, but it's what they use them to do. And that, I think, is why the European Commission is keeping a very, very close eye on what's going on in Poland and Hungary, even though we've got these states that have, as of today, uh, the, the, the COVID-19 response hasn't made the situation worse in terms of democracy in the rule of law. Thank you very much. And finally, a question for, for Martin um, about the role of the EU institutions in managing the, the exit um, of the crisis. Um, do you think there, there is an opportunity for, for the EU to also um, re-emerge out of this in a, in a strengthened fashion? What are the key challenges? You talked about stress points earlier and, and crucial capacities. So what would you see is the role here of, of, of the EU um, and what are the key challenges? Well, I mean, I think sort of the, 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 the way forward in, in that sense is, I suppose, is to be the, let's call it a helpful friend who is creating guidelines and some degree of consistency uh, in, a, in a way where member states on their own will basically scramble um, along and basically sort of si- try to seek solutions on their own without really understanding what the neighboring country is doing. So I think that is where, as Lydia highlighted, one gets sort of um, talk about how can we think about basically um, getting a holiday, uh, you know, somewhere uh, beyond 20 kilometers from our place um, and, and so on. Um, now, um, I think that is basically, you know, and I, I think we have sort of similar ideas, you know, we could sort of look at sort of the emergence of of this, uh, you know, of, of crisis regimes, one might sort of call it, which will sort of try to deal with uh, with the previous incidents of sort of inco- uncoordinated nature of national responses, such as sort of to bank crisis and so on. So, I mean, you know, we could sort of look at sort of the development of schemes here and sort of degrees of expertise uh, and then such like, and maybe we find sort of something uh, here too. Now, the problem here, however, is we're not talking just about systemic banks, uh, which, uh, you know, are sort of, um, you know, given sort of a special uh, sort of treatment. And even here, we might sort of wonder whether these, um, these fantasies, these documents are, you know, will actually sort of, um, you know, proved to be is that powerful when sort of a real sort of bank goes down um, now um, we're talking here and I think that's basically where I think sort of with um, you know we can have a debate with I in a bit I think sort of uh, you know I think the interesting question about the twilight zone is it's not just that it's a complex policy issue here with all these sort of creeping things that are the consequences of decisions taken so I think we have a lot of policy as its own course um, uh, to manage uh, and that ultimately means decentralized management ultimately between member states but also across EU institutions. Um, the centre cannot deal with all the unintended consequences that are emerging from the, you know, kind of from the acute phase, uh, as we may want to sort of define it. Uh, the problem is, I suspect, is that there will be many small um, acute crises coming along which have to do with health, uh, where basically the prioritization of health versus other sort of sectors of, of life uh, will become more uh, 
more and more acute uh, and which will require centralization. So I think sort of the critical part, both for EU institutions as well as member states themselves, will be this, this um, uneasy compromise between having to centralize uh, when an acute crisis hits uh, while decentralized management of the unintended consequences. And certainly, uh, possibly with societies that become increasingly restless of being told uh, uh, how to behave and being locked up um, in that sense. Thank you, Martin. I would now like to open it up for the questions from um, from the floor, from the audience. We already have received uh, a number of questions. Um, please continue to post your questions. Use the Q&A button at the uh, bottom of your of your screen. Um, Gerling Carr, he asks, are European countries in a position to help other poorer countries who are suffering just as hard, if not more, due to COVID? So this is about Europe, but also looking beyond Europe and what can European countries do to actually support other countries? So who wants to answer? Yeah, Lydie, please. Um I think the European Union can actually uh, still keep on uh, helping other countries, uh, even though it already it also faces a massive uh, internal crisis. Um, it has actually promoted, uh, well, not the European Union, but some um, countries of the European Union have been of the have been at the forefront of promoting uh, some uh, help for uh, developing countries. Uh, we've seen in particular France co- teaming up with other uh, G20 countries to um, advocate for a suspension of debt payment for the next six, m- six months so that uh, developing countries can uh, can have enough financial resources to respond to the crisis. Uh, so that is one option. I think uh, then there is the question of whether the European um, I think the then I think I would I would add that the European Union has also been uh, a strong advocate of support to the WHO, uh, which in the current time is essential because we've seen the WHO challenged by uh, leading countries such as the United States, um, and the WHO remain uh, an essential international actors to provide uh, crisis coordinations in times of pandemics. The WHO is still essential to help, uh, in particular, African countries uh, tackling this pandemic. Uh, and then there would be a third question, whether the, the European Union can do more uh, through uh, its various uh, aid mechanism. Um, I am not aware of specific initiatives, but I think that's uh, that's where probably there is uh, room uh, on the table. Uh, that say, for the moment, uh, African countries have been doing much better than Europe at uh, responding and containing the pandemic. Does anyone else want to respond? Okay. Then let, let's move on to more questions. We've received uh, quite a number of questions. Um, there is a question from Rod Dubitsky, um, who asked, do you think the global response has failed to adequately uh, consider the cost of the lockdown, i.e. massive government budget deficits, cutting back of government services, rise of non-COVID illnesses, reduction in vaccines for non-COVID disease, etc. So maybe, Aryan, do you want to respond to this question? Well, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's going to be the, the debate, isn't it? Um, you know, whether it was all worth it. And um, in the end, um, we may well have a question or an answer but uh, I, I back to uh, the phase where they were um, 
um, you know, really living through a deep uncertainty and a, and a major scare that um, uh, the models that were then dominant showed that hundreds of thousands of people could die and the virus might not even go away. And uh, so at that point in time, I think it was uh, uh, very defensible for many countries to take um, measures that, um, you know, any amateur virologist would probably propose. Now, the, uh, the question now as we're moving out is, and I think, you know, that's going to be the real question. How fast can we do that? And what are the and and do we know anything about the costs? Um, and um, there you can I think you can you can have all sorts of discussions and uh, um, I, I'm not so sure if, if I, I don't know of course that's the answer and uh, but if we're we're seeing an experiment we're seeing all these different countries do different things so we'll have winners we'll have losers. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, in addition to what Arian's saying, I think uh, we, we see quite different debates or, or uh, narratives or whatever you want, whatever term you want going on in, in different European countries. I mean, in, in, in the Norwegian press, for example, there's been some talk of the need to, to take into account the economic value of an extra few months uh, for even for critically ill people who would have died earlier um, or who, if, if we hadn't taken the corona measures in Italy. The press has been very much focused on the absolute sacred value of human life. And we've seen that also in the, in the recent debate in the Italian papers about paying ransoms for, for kidnapping victims. They just bought uh, one of them back. Whereas in, in Central Europe, particularly in Hungary, we've seen uh, uh, the blame game taken an entirely different form with, with the usual blame on international capitalism and George Soros and the European Union and the UN being, being, uh, being invoked also in the case of this crisis. Thank you, Liddy. You wanted to comment? Yeah, um, I think in addition to those debates, the question of the cost is not, uh, I think it's a bit more complex because it would be difficult to talk of a global response because actually countries have been responding in very um, in various ways in terms of cost. So we don't have yet the full picture. I think it's a bit early to give final um, uh, figures because we, we still don't know, you know how much government spent directly, how much they spent uh, indirectly through taxes. Um, but uh, what we could say is that there are different strategies and that will have various implications in terms of cost uh, and implication for the society and the economy. And the economy. Uh, for one, to give you one example, um, um, European uh, states uh, massively adopted what we call uh, Kurzarbeit, which is a, a temporary um, unemployment measure, so which means that employers put their um, uh, uh, employee temporarily on unemployment, but government subsidized their salary. This is actually a, a fairly efficient uh, system that worked pretty well during the 2008 crisis in Germany uh, because it helps. So it has massive costs for the government, but the costs on the economy um, will be less because the, the, the economy will be in a better position to recover. Um, this is really different, for example, from the US, uh, where uh, uh, millions and millions of uh, employees have been put on unemployment, which will contribute to the uh, destructions of, um, of a lot of jobs, of millions of jobs and uh, companies. This is, again, very different from countries such as India or African countries that have no uh, or little welfare states to support uh, the cost of confinement. Um, 
I would say in the case of independent countries, it, it's a huge cost, but the welfare systems uh, helps make those costs uh, manageable uh, and to eventually save lives, uh, which uh, in the COVID-19 would probably have um, just simply overflown uh, hospitals uh, and we, we just could not have coped. I would just re-emphasize also Ian's point and, and Lydia's point here, and Nick's point, so I agree with all of them, but uh, um, but um, the, I think we are talking here when, when sort of trying to make a point about cost of measures, I think one, one has a, you know, one has to take very sort of strong normative position here. So one is dealing here with deep uncertainty, uh, one has to sort of consider um, um, you know, what would have been um, the cost or the non, you know, what would have been the social response to non-action or some other action. Um, and I think that makes also comparison between different national sort of, let's call it, measures uh, quite difficult. I mean, apart from demographic profile, public health profile, um, population density and so on, um, I think different societies responded very differently to to sort of being alarmed to to a threat, uh, and I think that again, you know, I think might explain possibly even more about sort of certain kind of indicator developments than necessarily the government development on its own, government measures um, on their own. So I think there's sort of a, you know, I think that will sort of make it even more difficult to come to some kind of final number to say, well, this was this particular cost and uh, it might have been much cheaper. I mean, of course, in the aftermath of all of this, whenever that might be, there will be, uh, you know, the, the accounting offices um, of various countries will come along and will make sort of money for value or whatever, uh, value for money studies and such like. Um, and of course, questions will be asked about why certain things were there or were not there. But um, but I think sort of re-emphasizing Ian's point about the deep uncertainty at the moment of high threat, I think is uh, something to bear in mind for these sort of um, ex-post inquiries. Okay, we have another question um, that actually asked about the relationship between scientific expertise and political decision making. I think it's actually aimed at, at all um, of, of, of the panelists. So this is a question from Irene, who's a master's student in law at the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki in Greece. Um, do you believe that giving the podium to medical science, within reason, um, is putting aside the responsibility of executive power? Do you see a transformation of how actually government is conducted? Um, I can open on this one. I think it, it's a, this is a very uh, important and uh, relevant question. So thanks for asking it. Uh, I mean, I would answer in two points. First of all, um, not all countries have given the podium to uh, medical science in the same way. And actually, this is something very interesting. We see various ways of using uh, medical expertise, um, in particular across European countries. Uh, we see, for example, countries as uh, Sweden or Netherlands that heavily relies on the expertise from their public health institutes uh, and mostly listen to this, uh, even though there are calls for open, what we say, opening up the expertise, so bringing in other kinds of experts um, precisely to take into account those costs, but they still rely mostly on this. We see other countries as, um, I think, uh, the, the UK uh, or France, which have 
created dedicated experts committee. And here there's also a quick questions about who sits in this committee. I think this was a, there was a, a bit of contention there uh, in the UK, um, but mostly medical uh, expertise was there, although they actually also were business people and uh, executive. I will let Martin maybe comment more on the UK because there's a lot to say here. And in France, uh, actually, there was an interesting committee with both uh, medical scientists and uh, actually social scientists precisely to comment on um, on, the, on the, the impact of the confinement on the population. Um, so I think we can't say that uh, the podium has been given to medical science uh, all around uh, the countries. We actually see a lot of variations. Um, and after the crisis, there will be time to ask questions about what kind of expertise is listened to at which moment. Uh, then the second, I think the second point you raise is, you know, what does it mean for uh, executive government? Uh, that is, uh, that is indeed crucial. And um, again, here we see different uh, answers in, dip in different countries. Um, government had a tendency to say, we uh, follow the science. Um, and this assumes that science gives one clear advice and then uh, policy implements it. Uh, there has been a lot of policy studies and uh, so, uh, so, um, science and technology studies that show that actually it is, is always much more complicated. Um, in this crisis, we've seen indeed government um, in France, uh, in the Netherlands, the UK is a bit more complicated, in Germany that have been saying, we listen to the science, therefore we can find our population because this is the only uh, way to go. And indeed, this is very convenient for governments uh, to say this is what scientists say, so they uh, kind of offload their responsibility. Um, of course, then scientists are not very happy about that because they only give a recommendation, uh, but they don't uh, make the policy. They're, they're not responsible for the decisions. Um, so despite this, this would say this communicative efforts from the government to say that they follow the science, what we actually see is that they uh, choose the kind of expertise, they, uh, the kind of expertise and the kind of recommendation they want to promote. Um, so I, I'm not sure that we, 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 sh we should overgeneralize about the, um, how uh, some medical scientists have taken power. I think there is still uh, a lot to discuss and a lot of variations across countries. Thank you, Liddy. Anyone else who wants to comment on that question? Well, let, let me just add something. I think there's a very interesting paradox because, you know, the deeper we move into the crisis, the less the experts know and the more politicians are pushing uh, for some sort of uh, answer. So this is a really, uh, you know, again, it's some sort of a twilight zone, you could say. Um, so there, there really is no science on reopening a country after a pandemic. So we're, we're making it up as we go along. And, um, um, but you know, the consequences of failure are immense. So there's, uh, it's understandable that policymakers or politicians look at uh, scientists, experts. Um, and the relation has been shifting during the crisis. In the beginning, they knew a lot more than, than they know now. And, uh, but in the end, you know, politicians have to make the decisions. You know, they, they, it's just advice. That's all it is. I think I'll follow up a little bit from what from what Lydia said, simply about the importance of, uh, of of comparing different responses here. I think one of the things we look we, we get if we look at different regions in Italy, and this has been quite well reported in, for example, the Financial Times as well, is the very very different results in different 
regions in Italy based not so much on what the government said, but on their capacity in terms of size of hospitals, in terms of which kind of patients they take in and everything else. I think if you were to look to Scandinavia, you see very, very different uh, government uses of what is actually not that different medical advice. And we see, especially in, Nor in Norway and Denmark, the governments having taken what Martin and, uh, and Arian uh, described as the precautionary uh, approach to this, based, based on the sort of uh, going against their own uh, science, uh, medical scientists' advice when it comes to, for example, closing or opening schools, permitting people to use summer houses and things like that, being very explicit about acting uh, and making political decisions that are more cautious than, than their medical advice, as opposed to the Swedish case, where, where the medical advice has been very much put in the forefront. Thank you. Martin? You know, um, you know, so, I mean, I just, it's, it's really just a footnote. So I don't think we are you know, in a world of government by virologists or, or others. Um, but it does make me quite uneasy when the executive power, which is discretionary decisions, hides under a slogan called led by the science, um, suggesting indeed that there's no ambiguity um, within science, and that there's room for discretion. And um, the concern here is that um, it will actually pull science into an era area where it is on the political venue, uh, which part in part might even mean that you know science doesn't want to be there, um, and, and that might be highly that might be an unintended consequence, which would be highly undesirable um, um, in that sense. Um, I think there's sort of um, much further points I think too about sort of how. Um, how government would like to fund science in the future, um, uh, which arise from this, which go beyond um, this particular question. But, uh, you know, if, if science is supposed to give answers, then um, science cannot be sitting here writing research grant proposals, but it needs block funding, basically. And uh, I think that is sort of one more sort of implication, I think, of, uh, of this episode where I think the relationship between as call it government and its needs for, for scientific knowledge needs to evaluate itself what is the best way to to develop uh, scientific knowledge um, and which funding and other um, structures it wants to encourage here. Yes yeah I think the question also points to well, a much discussion about the relationships amongst different sets of expertise so medical science but also economic science um, and of course, also humanities and and some countries, for example, Germany, have a commission where where there are also um, people from the humanities actually advising the government and the relationship and interplay between these different um, different scientists. Uh, I have a question um, directly at Nick actually uh, from Karl Schumann, who asked: To what extent can you blame Germany and France for not taking or encouraging more decisive action against Poland and Hungary? So is it is it an EU? EU institutional problem, or what is really the role of, of powerful nation states here? I'd be very, very careful to, to put the blame on specific nation states. I think if, if I'm going to sort of, I wouldn't like to call it put blame, but that's what I'm doing, but I'm going to call it explain the, the very careful, if somewhat timid approach that EU has, has taken. I think, um, I think on the part of the Commission, it really has been a um, been, been this idea that things are best handled carefully, slowly, without uh, creating large political controversies. Um, 
in the European Parliament, I think all sides, to some extent, are to are, are, should be subject to some criticism for uh, taking partisan putting partisan politics above issues of democracy and the rule of law. And this this goes really goes back to a long issue about the role of right left politics in, in in the European Parliament. I think in this particular instance, with uh, not so much with Poland but with Hungary. Uh, the European People's Party clearly needs to look at the way it decided to hold back criticism from one of its member states, and it is in the process of doing it. It has, after all, suspended the the offending party from itself. I think if finally, if we were to start looking at individual member states, we would have to look at how they've indicated they might vote in the ambassadors' meetings in in the EU, and there we see, for example, Britain being caught up in the middle of Brexit, deciding to stay neutral. On this kind of issue, we see um, a number of the other Central European countries being very, very reluctant to to criticise one of their group, and we see other countries uh, such as Croatia, Bulgaria, and Romania uh, perhaps being a little bit careful about encouraging the EU to look too closely into to breaches of EU law for for fear that they might uh, be next in line. So no, France and Germany really do not stand out as as big states that deserve any kind of particular criticism here. Thank you, Nick. I have a question for um, Lydi and, and Aryan, and this question has been posed by uh, Frank Friedrich uh, from the Institute of Public Safety and Emergency Management um, at the University of Wuppertal in, in Germany. Uh, and, and he asks, usually I would have expected that the EU response mechanism would be much stronger in this crisis. But as you have said, this happened in a very limited way. So in your opinion, what are the major reasons for this? And, and how can this over, be overcome in the future? Um, I think, yeah, first of all, I think there is there was just not uh, the legal um, uh, the legal system and the policies were just not adequate. Um, because the, the European Union has only a shared competence in health, so it can support member states, it can encourage coordination, but it doesn't have really any enforcing power, uh, it doesn't have decision-making powers. So in that sense, it's not very surprising that uh, member states ended up taking decisions on their own and doing whatever they wanted. Um, the ECDC only has an adversary function, um, the the Health Security Committee, which is the most important, would say, decision-making body uh, at the Commission, well, ends up representing member states, but uh, they do not really make a joint policy. Uh, and I think finally, uh, the most specific point in terms of pandemic preparedness, which is um, which relates to uh, decision 1082 from uh, 2013, uh, which says that. Uh, which is about serious cross-border health threat, and that decision is about uh, information sharing uh, in, for uh, pandemic preparedness. Uh, in 2016, already the European Court of Auditors had said that this decision was really insufficient because there is no incentives for member states to share information. Pandemic preparedness, as often in crisis management, is a lot about uh, very sensitive, confidential uh, informations uh, that member states are reluctant to share. Um, so I think without a regulation uh, to, uh, I would say, provide more common templates and more common uh, procedures 
for pandemic preparedness, there is no way member states could have had more uh, common policies and easier way to cooperate with one another. Uh, so, I mean, my first answer is that the legal and policy system was uh, not there. Um, and therefore, uh, it is not surprising that member states were, uh, you know, they are first and foremost accountable to their population. So, um, being accountable to their population will be more important for them than uh, solidarity within the European Union. Thank you, Lydie. Arjen? Well, I would add to that uh, um, that, you know, there's um, certainly an, an ambition in the, in the European Commission to play a role in, in transboundary crisis. But um, unfortunately, it's not been much more than an ambition at this point. And there's, there's, there's not a, a, um, a really thought out idea of what the role of the commission or its agencies could then be in uh, facilitating coordination between member states that are all being afflicted by the same crisis at the same time. It's just on a scenario that's been uh, thought through. And the only agency that uh, could have played a, uh, you know, a, a, a slightly more forward role is um, um, the ECDC in Stockholm. And, uh, and they've, you know, essentially managed the website with stuff that you and I, knew, you know, we knew that we didn't need the website of the ECDC. And they, uh, they, they've not, and there's all sorts of legal reasons why they didn't want to do that. Um, but I also think if you, if you can't demonstrate your, um, your added value, as EU scholars like to say, in a, in a pandemic like this, if you're the agency that supposedly sits on all that knowledge, then uh, you're you're just not advertising, uh, um, you know, the role of the EU there. Sad, sad to say. Yeah, thanks, Arian. Um, we have another question uh, that looks about the role, the changing role of the UK, UK um, in view of Brexit um, in their sort of coordination, European coordination of of the crisis management. Um, so, Liz Google is asked. First of all, a question, um, is the UK still a participant member of the EU crisis management institutions referred to by Lidi, for example, the ECDC that, that also Arjen talked about? Um, but I think that the question also, we, we can interpret it more broadly, you know, how do you see the changing role of the UK and, and the changing relationships between sort of the UK and other European EU member states um, in actually coordinating and, and building um, trans boundary capacity in, in the management of, of the COVID-19 crisis? Um, and briefly on the European mechanisms, so because the UK is still in that transition period, um, in theory, it can still participate to all this committee. It should have had access to, um, to ECDC information. Uh, it, could, it should have been able to participate to joint initiatives such as joint procurement. Uh, what has come out in the press is that the UK is not willing to participate in those committees. There has been uh, a couple of pro in the British press about uh, the UK having missed the opportunity to participate to the uh, joint procurements I mentioned, which uh, may have helped the UK having access to more um, uh, protective equipment at a better price. Uh, I mean, this is clearly... Um, uh, you know, a, a political strategy from the UK that is completely coherent from uh, the point of view of the Brexit uh, policy that has been uh, 
followed by um, uh, the current executive. Uh, what I mean, and in thinking in terms of uh, a bit in terms of future, what could be its role in terms of pandemics? Uh, I think the fact that the UK has had this, uh, we say, standalone position, a bit uh, free, um, not willing to cooperate uh, with the European Union, doesn't mean it, it hasn't been talking to other member states on a one-on-one basis. Um, for example, with France, uh, we've seen that, the, for example, France uh, at some point threatened uh, to close the border if the UK was not taking more uh, uh, more um, uh, re- uh, restrictions against uh, COVID-19. Um, and uh, there has been a set of bilateral actions. Um, I think that may... That, um, that is partly that is partly the UK solution, but that, uh, as in other crises, and it's something that we've seen in our research, uh, for transboundary crises, uh, being alone and playing alone is very complicated because you do need information from your neighbour. Um, as there is travels between countries, you do need to regulate uh, the flows of goods and human across borders. Um, it's that the UK is uh, very close to all the European Union. It shares a border with Ireland um, and is very close also to France and Belgium. Um, so I think that uh, really shows some of the uh, you know, uh, issues and uh, serious challenge uh, that the Brexit will have to face because in case of such massive pandemics, talking to your neighbour is kind of necessary. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, I think, I think uh, in addition to, to what Liddy's saying here, there's really two very different dynamics at play. One is the short-term dynamic and one is the longer-term dynamic. And if, if we are to look at countries that are sort of half in, half out, Norway, Switzerland, Iceland, um, Liechtenstein, for that, for that matter, I think, I think we, we get a slightly different longer-term dynamic. So the short-term dynamic, uh, I think, has always been towards a hard Brexit, the hardest of hard Brexit within, within certain parameters in the short-term. But I would, I would say that if we look slightly longer term, perhaps beyond the term of the current prime minister, but even beyond, beyond the next couple of years, we're likely to see Britain needing to engage with the EU on this area and a number of other areas. It's sort of buy-ins, if you want, the opposite of an opt-out. You can opt-out or you can buy-in. Buy-ins to all the various mechanisms of the EU, including these ones in, in the sort of medium term. That would be the lessons from Norway if there are any. Yeah, Martin. I mean, I would suspect, given the toxic nature of anything that is called European Union um, in the current political administration, uh, that the functional need to think about transboundary problems in a transboundary way uh, will lead to an active exploration of alternative fora. Now, uh, whether they exist, whether they're actually supporting um, that, whether there's enough administrative capacity to even support uh, such kind of um, uh, development when another infrastructure is there is sort of um, somewhat questionable to me. But um, but I think there will be sort of uh, some uh, uh, realizations there. However, um, I do, you know, I'm, I'm quite skeptical about this realization at the same time because um, um, uh, a context which wants to show how um, brilliant, um, you know, uh, a country can do without 
EU membership um, is not the most likely to search for um, solutions elsewhere. Although in other areas, we do find, you know, kind of quite a lot of proactiveness when it comes to using the G20 as sort of a crisis mechanism. So in that sense, you know, I think sort of it's sort of, uh, it could either, it could go both ways. It will be seeking alternative venues or it will be sort of uh, stuck there and then sort of seek, as sort of Nick would suggest, sort of a long-term uh, settlement um, on this matter. Um, but but I do think that in the current climate, uh, mentioning the EU on a memorandum uh, to a minister or a secretary of state uh, will continue to be not very popular. Thank you. Um, I have one question from John Harvey, who asks actually about the specificities of territoriality and how that affects crisis management in relation to COVID-19. So he asks, why have the boundaryless states of New Zealand and Japan performed so differently and what could what could Europe learn from these models, or how would you explain difference? I don't know. Maybe maybe this is from Martin, who has done work on New Zealand. Um. Well, I mean, um, well, I think basically, I mean, the, the positive story about New Zealand is um, is I mean, you know, if I wanted to sort of. You know, I'm, I'm not a particular expert on this, but they would say they went in early, went very hard, and very sort of uh, um, and. Uh, you know, and then basically were successful. Um, um, all tourists were basically, you know, kind of um, shipped out um, by various EU missions where we had EU uh, cooperation was sort of a return of tourists from all sorts of places. Um, but, um, um, uh, you know, you might argue there's a benefit of, a, um, you know, of kind of um, an island country which uh, can control its borders quite easily uh, in that sense. Um, um, it is a country where population density is not very high. So in that sense, many things basically, you know, and you might argue too, sort of in terms of social norms, you know, a highly cooperative uh, society. So, so all of that, basically, you might say sort of uh, support sort of the, the trends that one has sort of seen uh, uh, in New Zealand in this particular kind of um, case. Does anyone else want to respond to this question, the role of being an island? Yeah. I think just very quickly, I think, I think Martin's onto something when he points to things like low density mm. and relative isolation. It's not so much about being an island. I mean, look at Finland. Finland's not an island. Or, or, or if you look at uh, Norway and Denmark, again, the, the really high number of cases came from people who returned from skiing holidays in, in, in Italy and um, in Austria. And if you do the counterfactual thinking about if this had happened, uh, not at the moment of those holidays, but later, I think you would have seen very similar dynamics there uh, in terms of uh, not having a lot of cases. So I think the, the factors that Martin pointed to about low density and isolation are probably as important as the actual surrounding water. Yeah. And we're coming nearly to the end of, of today's event, but I would like to um, pose one last question from, from the audience to, to all of you. So this question uh, comes from Lennart Metzen. Uh, he's an LSE government undergraduate. Um, and, and he says, he, he asked about the relationship between civil servants and political advisors. So what balance should be there between independent civil servants and political advisors in handling crisis? And what impact would this have on transboundary cooperation? Wonderful exam question could fill a whole course. Um, uh, but I think sort of um, across this, this issue, I think, we, you know, I think across sort of various questions or points we discussed, I think sort of the question between 
what you might want to call a sort of a non-majoritarian management of the crisis where we would like, you know, kind of some sort of somehow objective measurement system which gives us a warning where a bunch of objective people without any biases or disciplinary viewpoints have a clear view, uh, give a clear kind of set of um, advice to a bunch of politicians who then take difficult decisions, which are willing sort of uh, then to face electoral punishment for these. I mean, you know, in, in many ways, you could argue that sort of the dream world of, of crisis management, I'm sure Ian will fundamentally disagree with this. Um, that's why I said it. Um, but, um, but I think sort of, um, I think this particular case um, highlights all of these uh, kind of tensions. It highlights sort of, um, you know, when in particular, when we come now to the great, you know, kind of unwinding, as you may want to call it, this twilight zone, where ultimately you might say, say this is a moment where majoritarian politics or politicization, you might want to call it, will come back, where basically people will claim that they need to be released into the economy, where other people will say they they're not ready yet or they need sort of some bailout funds and so on. This is a moment where basically really is a kind of, you might argue, what you would call sort of independent advice about sort of whatever, you know, numbers might tell you and this dashboard might give you and basically ultimately political choices as that kind of conflict will come to the fore. And I think that is also why, as sort of also Nick highlighted, the sort of a state of an emergency state is a particular kind of interest and dangerous one, possibly for liberal democracy, uh, when it comes to this great unwinding. Yeah. If I could follow up directly on Martin there, I think the the key, uh, the, the two key issues at hand are kind of public trust, trust in the civil service, trust in the government, and consensus politics. I think we're going to see a big difference between the countries in which the governments are seeking to reach out to the opposition, to get cross-party consensus, on the emergency measures, on the emergency uh, mechanisms, on the actual measures, and on relaxing the timing. This is something we're typically going to see in Scandinavia. So myself to social Scandinavian bias here. And and what we're seeing in some other countries in the EU, um, particularly in Italy, where where we're seeing uh, strong criticism from from the far right, particularly Salini, of the government's handling of this. We're seeing the government's handling of the crisis and handling of the debate about the EU money for the crisis turned into a political football. And, and I think those Norway and Italy there represent in many ways the kind of kind of experience between po- uh, turning crisis issues into partisan politics and the efforts very much to depoliticize it. And I think that's important to take into account when you think about the relationship between the government and civil service. It becomes much easier if they try and depoliticize these type of issues, uh, in countries where these kind of issues turn into political football, as, as for example, handling of terrorism has shown us, where it's much easier to, do, to come up with sensible strategies if Labour and Conservatives agree than in countries where the Democrats and Republicans are, are fighting each other every day over how to handle terrorism. Uh- just to add some things over that, I think what what's something something interesting that um, is maybe changing or that we're seeing in this crisis and some evolution about uh, the kind of responsibilities of um, over crisis management. Traditionally, actually, a lot of crisis management organization bureaucracies and plans tend to stay at the backstage from the public. Like they operate actually on a daily basis, but they're not very visible um, except in times of crisis. So which means that the public tend to forget about uh, about these um, bureaucracies that are there and preparing for crisis while uh, politicians and government are um, uh, accountable and uh, 
um, accountable for the decisions they make in times of crisis and governments tend to make sure that their decisions are highly visible. Um, I think one interesting trend that we are seeing is that um, in this crisis is that a lot of micro decisions about crisis management are heavily uh, discussed by the public um, and uh, because it has so much impact on the lives of citizens. Uh, and it's not, and, and it comes to a point that it's not just crisis management, it's a redefinition of the ordinary, ordinary lives of citizens. Um, and I think we may see uh, uh, maybe a greater oversight of, uh, of uh, crisis management organiz organizations and uh, plans and the way they operate. Um, I mean, to give you one example, I think there has been a very interesting controversy in France over uh, masks. Um, France used to be 10 years ago, one of the country uh, the best prepared uh, in the planet, Everybody, um, uh, always topped the uh, WHO ranking for masks. Um, and over the years, the, you know, it had one billion of masks uh, 10 years ago. And um, uh, in 10 years, this talks reduced to uh, about 100. So there seems to have been uh, various factors playing there, but uh, apparently one of the uh, main reasons uh, why this talks uh, diminished to almost nothing and reduced the ability of France to uh, manage uh, pandemics is the evolution of bureaucrats themselves, uh, of the bureaucracies, uh, and the way they made decisions over the transformation of crisis management. Um, and it looks like politicians may not have had a clear understanding of what was happening because it was tiny, uh, it was tiny, it was obscure in the bureaucracy. And now uh, it's, uh, it's being put there in the public places and there are, uh, you know, public discussions about the role of mask in crisis management. So I think there's... Uh, this may, I think, change uh, and bring more uh, public oversight and scrutiny uh, in terms of crisis management uh, in the coming years. And it's probably time to stop. Thanks, Lydie. We are reaching now the end, actually, of, of this debate, you know, a very rich debate where we probably raised more questions you know, than, than answers. Um, touching on many, many different different issues. But, uh, but some key things to take away is the multifaceted nature, but also the different phases of crisis management, you know, COVID-19. Um, I would like to thank you all for participating in the debate. You know, thanks um, a lot to the audience for posting the question. Unfortunately, we weren't able to answer all of your questions. Hopefully, some of those were answered um, by the speakers when, when they spoke, uh, answered, and, and gave their statements. I would like to thank all our speakers, Nick, Martin, Aryan, and Liddy for participating in the debate. And um, yeah, and lastly, I would also like to thank the LSE events team for actually making this possible and acting behind the scenes to make this um, sort of seamless. So thank you very much, um, everyone, and uh, have a good rest afternoon or evening or wherever you are in the world. Um, and I look forward to seeing you again um, in another form or fashion. Thank you very much and goodbye.